Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Park Church Podcast. My name is James Lapine. I'm your host, and I'm so excited that you're here with us today for our very first episode. Let me tell you what the Park Church Podcast is all about. Um, Each week on the show, we're going to talk with a well-known author or speaker. We're going to take their ideas and distill those down into practical next steps that you can incorporate into your everyday life. Um, Our guest today is Mike Cosper. Mike was one of the founding pastors of Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky. He's the author most recently of The Stories We Tell and Rhythms of Grace. Uh, Mike is also an alumnus of our symposium events. So you might remember when he and Jamie Smith came in the spring of 2015 and spoke. Um, Today on the show, we're going to talk about what he learned uh, while planting and growing uh, a fastly growing church. Uh, We're going to talk about the one piece of advice that he'd give to a church planter today, uh, his favorite movies, TV shows, and books, what he thought of the new Star Wars movie, and who he's planning on voting for. That's at the very end of the episode, so you want to stay tuned for that. Um, We mentioned a ton of resources on this episode, and you can find all of those listed uh, on the show notes at parkchurchdenver.org slash podcast. So don't worry about writing everything down while you're listening. You can just go to that URL uh, at any point, really, and check out everything that we talk about today on the show. Um, If you enjoyed today's episode, here are the two things that I'd ask you to do. First of all, subscribe so that you don't miss out when we post the next uh, episode of the show. And then secondly, if you could hop in and rate and review us in iTunes, that will help other people find the show. Um, So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview with Mike Cosper. Hey, Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, of course. Um, I'd love to start off with you just telling us about the origin of, of Sojourn Church, how you guys got started. I know you were pretty young when you got started, um, about the growth that you experienced, what you guys, some, maybe some of the big things that you learned along the way. Yeah. Yeah, so Sojourn started in, in the year 2000. Um, uh, I got married in December of 99. Uh, I was 19 years old. A month later, we, we started planting this church. I think like a lot of churches that were planted at that time, you know, I was part of a community that felt a bit displaced from the churches I'd grown up at. We grew up, you know, in evangelical, sort of mainstream evangelical churches. Um, uh, I, I was part of sort of a mega church in the suburbs and never quite felt at home, never quite felt like my place. Um, a group of about a dozen of us found ourselves displaced. And for about six months prior, maybe, maybe nine months prior to planting the church, um, we, we had been gathering in an apartment and just gathering Wednesday nights and praying. Um, we used to always joke that one day we were just going to give up and go join Southeast, which is the big 40,000-member megachurch in town. But somewhere along the line, God kind of brought three groups of people together. It was, there was our Bible study. There was a group with Youth for Christ that was doing evangelism with kids that were in the punk, hardcore, and goth scene in Louisville. And they were seeing converts and, and then finding the same thing, looking for a place to land. And then Daniel Montgomery, the lead pastor of the, uh, of the church, lead planter. Uh, Daniel and, and, and a few other couples from Southern Seminary had been talking about planting a church in this neighborhood where YFC happened to be doing this outreach and where our Bible study happened to be. So God's providence, you know, a mutual friend, pastor connected us all together. And uh, we came together around a, kind of a shared vision for a different way of doing church. And um, and, you know, 16 years later, here, here, here we are. Here it is. So, <laughs> okay, so you guys launched in 2000. Yeah. And, and what 
happened from there? Yeah, you know, the first three or four years was kind of finding our sea legs, figuring yeah. out who we were, figuring out what we valued. Um, big, big, massive change for us was around 2004, when I would say we sort of rediscovered the gospel. Hmm. Um, we would have passed any orthodoxy test for ministry uh, up to that point, but around 2004, given the ministries of people like um, Bob Coughlin and Tim Keller, um, John Piper, and others, we, we came back around to seeing the way that the gospel could truly be central to all of the ministries in the life of the church. Um, I always describe it from the worship perspective, you know, it was this idea that when we, when we awoke to the centrality of the gospel, we, we thought, well, wouldn't it be great if the whole worship service told the story of the gospel and we remembered that God's holy and we're sinners and Jesus saves us, Jesus sends us. And so we started trying to figure out how to do that. And lo and behold, we realized, oh, the church has actually been doing this for a long, long time. Um, and that was the rediscover of sort of worship and liturgy and, and uh, a whole tradition that we could latch on to. So that was about 04, that, um, 03, 04, that, that led to like a major, our first major growth spurt. Um, we ran out of space and started looking for a building to buy. Long story short, we ended up buying an old elementary school building that had been, uh, the city had, had walked away from and put up for auction. Um, and that became the 930 Arts Center, and that, that sort of dominated the next five or six years of ministry as well. Um, the 930 Arts Center was a place where we had a music venue, we had art galleries, we had, uh, you know, artists renting studio space from us on the third floor of that building, everything from visual artists who were doing sculpture and painting and things like that to a skateboard company, a documentary film company. Um, and our goal was to sort of use this building as a way to be an olive branch for the city. Mm. And... Uh, you know, there was never like a bait and switch thing where we were going to leave tracks under your doors if you rented, rented stuff or, or flyer your cars if you came to see a show. Um, we, it was just an idea of really at the time the city didn't have an all-ages venue. That was one reason we wanted to, to start it. The city also had a bad reputation for, for being a place to play because the crowds typically at a, at a show in Louisville, the crowd is often drunk before the band gets up to play. <laughs> um, so here we're a venue. We, sell co you know, we serve coffee and tea and... Um, it, it became this great place to see certain kinds of shows. Okay. Um, so that, that attracted a lot of people that, that attracted a lot of people around a vision of sort of faith in the arts and that intersection mm -hmm. and the conversations that happened there. Um, and then around uh, next big significant shift would have been around 2010, which is when we began doing multi-site. Okay. And then in a period of about less than two years, we went from one site to four sites and, uh, and we've all been in therapy ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you have. Um, okay, so the shift in 04, when you had this realization, we should be retelling the gospel story mm -hmm. during a Sunday service. Yeah. What practical changes did you make? Yeah. Yeah, practically it became just being far more conscious about the, the service as a narrative. And so making sure that, you know, um, you know, the typical, what, what, what you hear is sort of the typical evangelical liturgy is you play, um, you, you, you play a bunch of fast songs at the beginning to get people hyped up and ready for the sermon. And then you play slow, reflective songs at the end. And then maybe you, you end with one more fast song to send them out on a high note. Yeah. You know, it's like George Costanza, always end on a high note, right? <laughs> um, and, and there's obviously, there's, that's generalization. There's variations of that. Um, for us, like part of the, re part of the realization of that was, was the recognition that this whole thing matters hmm. and that, you know, that if, if worship is the work of the people, if liturgy is the work of the people, then let's really pay attention to what are we asking them to do during the gathering. 
in terms of confessing their sins and assuring one another of salvation and all this this kind of stuff. Um, so the I mean practical practically everything changed in mm-hmm. many ways. Um, you know, uh, adopting something that looks like the traditional liturgy of, with having a call to call to worship and a followed by adoration and a call to confession, followed by confession and lament, and then uh, words of assurance, and then passing the peace. All those, mm-hmm. all those elements that you know, in some in some in some free churches, those are there in subtle ways. Um, the greeting, the traditional say hi to your neighbor friend, um, that's that's sort of a lost orphan of the liturgy where you turn and greet one another with the peace of Christ. Right. Um, so it was just being deliberate about trying to reconnect some of those things that were there. Um, and then being, trying to be really thoughtful about language and habits and practices that are embedded in the service, mm-hmm. being deliberate mm-hmm. about those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. That's good. Okay. And then uh, talk a little bit more about um, the building that you bought. I think, at least in the environment that I grew up in, uh, there was a secular, sacred divide when it mm-hmm. came to the arts. Right. Um, and so I could listen to Christian music, but right. but not secular music. Right. Um, so how, what did what things did you guys do to bridge some of that? Yeah, I mean we we were very intentional about we named the space the 9:30 Art Center, and we were very intentional about saying this is a building, and this is a building where we where we do all kinds of gatherings, and we um, we do all kinds of things. We host some Christian shows, some non-Christian shows, all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, in a sense, this place is our olive branch to to the city. Um, the church gathers here. Um, the building isn't the church, right? Mm-hmm. Like I remember the band Yola Tango played there one time and, um, they were, they were, uh, they were pretty ambivalent about playing in, in our building because we were evangelicals and people had spammed them with emails saying you can't play there. These, these are horrible evangelical Christians. Um, and so they were talking about, they were like talking about it from the platform. Like I never, you know, making jokes about like, I never thought we'd ever be asked to play in a church. And I just remember laughing in my head thinking, there's no way I'd ask you to play in my church, (laughs) 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 but this isn't a church. This is just a, this is the space where we meet. Yeah. And you know, the church, you know, back to the liturgy, like the the gathering of the church is kind of marked by these specific habits and practices. Um, so one way we, we learned to sort of talk about it over the years, we, we got this from Harold best is that, when when Christianity is engaging with with the arts, um, there's three. It, everything falls into three categories. There's art for the church, which is everything that's going to happen, uh, worship and ser- you know art and service of the liturgy. So uh, worship music and prayers and sermons and all of that would all sort of fall into that category. Uh, the visual art stuff that happens in mm-hmm. a gathering space. Mm-hmm. Um, there's art from the church, which is the Christian in the world doing their work. Uh, and then there's uh, art facing the church. How do we respond to the, 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 the work around us? Yeah. Um, I think those three categories are really helpful because the art for the church piece, art and service of the liturgy, is just a really specific way of thinking about the work of certain artists. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so for instance, like one great distinction is that um, uh, I've heard Shailen talk about this. Like Shailen describes himself as an artist who's doing art for the church. Hmm. He's doing art to catechize, catechize believers in Reformed theology, and it's very specific. And and he he there's certain places he doesn't go as an artist, and there's there's certain sort of um, even boundaries he says he's not willing to push because he wants to focus on serving the church and making it word centric. Um, and that would be different from an artist like Lecrae, who's very focused on serving the world, you know. And 
so an artist in the world is meant to, to his competition isn't other Christians in the world. His competition is the whole world of the arts. Um, and his opportunity in terms of what he has to speak about, like the artist in the world should be, should be trying to push all those boundaries and push all those buttons mm. and do all the provocative work that, that the arts can do. Yeah. Um, that when you look at art in the church, you go, I don't know if that has a place there. Sure. So. Sure. That's good. That's helpful. Um, we may have some folks listening who are interested in a multi-site model for their church. Um, what, what you said four four of them in two years, about two years. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, give or take a month or two. So yeah. what did you guys do in terms of, uh, live preaching, live music, mm -hmm. getting buildings, that kind of stuff? Yeah. In the early days, we really looked at it and thought, um, we always sort of left the door open for the possibility of, uh, of going to video. Um, 2010, like that was, there was no, there was no faux pas around it around 2010 where I think now people are a little more suspicious of it naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we always, we always sort of talked about it, even from the platform, we might go in that direction, but we're going to do live preaching for now. Um, cause for one thing, video, video is extremely expensive and getting, just getting people trained who can do the work is, yeah. is, is really expensive. Yeah. Um, but then sort of step by step um, along the way, um, the Lord just provided. The Lord provided mm -hmm. leaders and teachers and preachers where that option never got really on the table mm -hmm. in, a, in a really meaningful way. There was, always, there was always a way to do it. And then over time, I mean, the, the dramatic difference between where we are now and, and where we were then is I think at the time we saw um, – it's a ter it's a terrible word. I don't know that we would have used the word, but but functionally it was almost like multi-site was a way to franchise. Like, yeah. okay, this thing is working here. We're going to do it over here. And we're going to do it exactly the same. Mm. And we want to import our DNA. We want to import our um, uh, our way of doing things there. Where, where things are now is um, what holds us central is 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 a set of values about the kind of church we want to be and the, the the philosophy of ministry that we want to govern us. Um, but, but each of these campuses needs to have a ton of autonomy to flesh out those values in different contexts because all four of the campuses, all, all four contexts, we don't even call them campuses anymore. Mm -hmm. we, we just call them churches. Um, um, and, and, and technically they, they would all be angry at me for calling them campuses. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, the the each context is really dramatically different, and each worship service looks very different and feels yeah. very different. Even though, in when you break them down, you see there's a certain unity in in the things they're doing, and yeah. um, and certainly there's unity in, in the theology and ecclesiology right. that's driving it. So, right. broad unity with the ability to to have some freedom in the specifics of how that get yeah. played out. Yeah, yeah, a lot of decentralized stuff, a yeah. lot of. Um, a lot of recognizing that, like, certain certain philosophy of ministry things, you know, way, ways you would do it in the inner city aren't going to translate to mm -hmm. the suburb. Mm -hmm. um, ways that you might do it in one rural part of the city might be very different than, than you know, sort of a mixed, uh, multi-generation, multi multi-socioeconomic neighborhood yeah. that's more near the city center. Yeah. Um, so all, all of that has really, I think, fleshed out in healthier ways where... where there's there's far far more autonomy mm -hmm. than there was before, mm -hmm. and and the campuses seem to thrive the more you do that. Okay, well that's helpful. Thanks. Um, as you think back to when you guys planted 16 years ago, if there's somebody listening right now who's saying I'm thinking about planting my church, mm. what's the one or two things that that you mm. feel like you would say, hey, look out for this, or yeah, 
Yeah, uh, gosh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk lately about church planting and, and sort of what does it take to plant the church and what does it take for the churches to last? You know, we've seen a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of leaders fall or resign or transition out uh, for, for various reasons kind of all over the country. It's happened. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a national phenomenon. Um, and. And a lot of times we look at we look at that and we look at uh, there's a certain kind of energy that seems to be associated with all of those leaders. Um, I wonder though, as hard as it is to plant a church, um, if there isn't something to be said for it, it takes a certain kind of tenacity hmm. to do it. You know, to endure um, to endure the difficulty of plowing the ground for the first time and of of casting a vision and of motivating. I mean, most of the time when you're planting a church, you're going to attract a crowd. You know, you might attract a crowd. Um, the hard thing is motivating those people to get on mission mm. and to move a church towards sustainability where it can be there for 25 years and influence a neighborhood and, mm. and transform, you know, transform people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the tenacity that it takes to start the church is one thing that's like you've got to be, you know, Chris Saka talks about this with, with startups. Mm. Like you have to have a sense of inevitability. This is going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think that's true with, with church planting. You have to have a, a really deep set of sense of conviction about that. Um, but I think from the beginning as well, you have to have you have to have in your mind that there's going to be a really significant difference between um, well, there's a line in the West Wing actually where they talk about the difference between gover- campaigning and governing. Mm-hmm. And campaigning, it's this tenacious twenty four seven. You just got to kill yourself to to win the next primary, to win the next thing, to kind of move the thing forward. But but there comes this transition period where you go from that campaign season where it's all adrenaline all the time to the governing season where you go, okay, we've got to sustain this for the next four mm-hmm. years and, and be judicious about, you know, our partnerships and who we're working with and all that. Some of that I think applies to the church. Like yeah. there's the campaign season that's like, that's like build and, and establish it and all of that. And then, and then you want this church to be here for 25 years. So, so let's choose health. Let's, let's establish broad plurality and, uh, and and be way more sober in the, the, the kinds of challenges we take on and, and all that. Yeah, yeah, so that's good. You can't live on the adrenaline forever. <laughs> right, right. Um, you mentioned the West Wing. You wrote a book last year on uh, stories? Yeah, two years ago. Two yeah. years ago, 2014. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. the stories we tell where you talk about how um, we're all obsessed with stories. Right. And, and they speak to a deeper longing within us. Can you flesh out that idea a little bit? Yeah, I think um, my favorite my favorite example of, of this um, these days comes from uh, Cormac, McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy has this three novel series called the Border Trilogy, and someone I don't know if it was the Washington I'm sorry I don't know if it was the New York Review of Books or if it was the LA Review of Books one of them but when when one of those books come out came out the the title of the book review was a guy knocks on your door and tells you his whole life story because there's this there's this thing that McCarthy does in those books where um, about every 20, 30 pages, somebody sits down and tells you their whole life story. And one of the central figures in the Border Trilogy is this guy named John Grady Cole. And he, he's born, you know, he's born in a, uh, he's the son of a cowboy. Uh, and he's, he kind of comes of age right as the age of the cowboy is ending. So, he, so he's, you know, he rides his horse south to go to Mexico because he's looking for work down there where he can do what he does with horses and all this kind of stuff. But of course, he gets there, and he's a northerner. He's he's an American. He doesn't fit there either. 
And so the only place where he has a home is in the story that he tells about himself. And he tells this story in, in the first book of that series. He tells his own story three or four times. Um, and I think what McCarthy's doing, I think the reason all these characters are constantly telling their life stories is he's, he's showing us the way that stories frame our world. Like, stories are the way that we know this is where I came from, and this is, this is what my life is for, and what that purpose is. And I think, um, you know, I just think there's a tremendous amount of interesting, like, psychological research on stories, and, and even evolutionary biologists have looked at storytelling and tried to figure out, like, why do we have this weird capability? Why do we have this weird capacity? And they, they, there's, there's, there's suggestions for it, but none of them are very satisfying. Mm. Um, and I think the heart of our capacity for stories and our love for stories is that we're story receptors because God relates to us through story, you know? Mm. 60-something percent of the Bible is narrative. And, and throughout the Bible, people are telling, their, telling their, their covenant stories and retelling their covenant stories. I mean, the most blatant example I can think of is Exodus, I think it's chapter 15, when Pharaoh is crushed by the Red Sea and uh, his armies are destroyed. And what, what happens in that moment is Moses stops and tells Israel the story that they just lived. You know, it just happened. Um, like you can imagine there are people in the crowd probably going, dude, we were there. <laughs> but, but he does this and, 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 and he does it so he does it so that they have that story. And so that, so that the thing is framed, right? Right. This is what God did. Right. And this is who he's made us. Yeah. Um, and you see that story passed down throughout over generations and over in yep. the Psalms and yeah, yep. and told over and over. Yeah. So I think what, <clears throat> I think when you look at the world of stories, you know, and you think about the fact that we're, we're living in exile, we live in a world apart from God. You can look at storytelling as a way that people are trying to solve. Try, they're trying to find those answers. They're trying to resolve those questions. I mean, in many ways, it's kind of an Act 17 thing. Of We, we can look at their stories and, and see them as sort of love songs to an unknown God. Mm. Um, mm. And then in the, in, the, in the Christian story, the grander story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, those stories find their place. Um, those stories find a, a, a true or better answer at times. Or... Um, or those stories tuck in beautifully with what with what that bigger narrative is mm. is trying to say. Mm. Yeah, we all feel brokenness and long for redemption, right? And so we figured out that we can tell ourselves stories right. of of feeling that brokenness and longing for that redemption. Right. Yeah, yeah. How do we get here? Why is the world broken? Why mm. is, why aren't things the way they're supposed to mm. be? Um, why do all of our efforts at redemption often fail? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of failure stories along those lines. Um, Tarantino is one of my favorite examples. Here's a guy who who's obsessed with, obsessed with justice, ultimately, you know, uh, the Kill Bill movies and uh, Inglorious Bastards and um, um, the, the one that he did just a couple years ago, the name is slipping my mind. They're all about, they're all, they all center on these horrific injustices and on a sort of a lone gun character who's going to go and, and mm. make everything right. Mm. And uh, they're, they're vicious and bloody and gory and horrible. Um, but he's actually tapping into something that's true. Like, yeah. if we want justice in the world, it, it demands bloodshed. Mm. So. It demands a savior, yeah. Um, okay, this is, feel free to just say pass on this one. <laughs> but if you could give us favorite movie, mm. favorite TV show. So I'd have to stop and say, okay, what genre? Because like, <laughs> you, you, you're talking apples and oranges right. when you talk movies. Cause, yeah, yeah. Because the, the two I always point to, and they couldn't, they couldn't be more different, are... Um, the Godfather Part Two. I just think that movie is perfect. Yeah. It's just so perfect the way the two stories are told mm. and, and interwoven. Um, 
the script, the acting, blah, blah, blah. I mean, and it's a cliche to even mention that movie, but it's amazing. But then the other one, my other favorite movie, uh, favorite of all time, is Blazing Saddles. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, that movie was written, a lot of people don't realize this, but that was Mel Brooks's commentary on race. Yeah. And his, his partner, his co-writer on the film was Richard Pryor. Uh, Pryor was this sort of young, up-and-coming comedian in New York City. Um, Mel, uh, uh, Mel, Brooks had the, Mel Brooks had the wisdom to recognize that he should probably have an African-American help him write this script. Yeah. And, uh, and so they wrote that movie. They would, they'd get off work and they'd meet. Uh, they'd, they'd get takeout and they'd sit around uh, Mel Brooks' dinner table on the Lower East Side and write that. That's how that movie got wow. written. Wow, didn't know that. Um, and I just think it's one of those, it's one of those groundbreaking, like every, every great comedy that you've loved your whole life has probably in some ways borrowed devices and ideas oh, sure. that come out of that movie. It's just, it's just genius. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Maybe a better question for TV show and book. Yeah. What are the, what's the TV show that people aren't watching that you go, you have to check that out hmm. and, and same with book. Yeah. I think, um, billions just ended its first season. Yeah. And obviously, like, to a Christian audience, you always want to warn, like, hey, this is rated R show, for yep. sure. Yeah. Um, but the the things that they're exploring there in terms of sort of power and and righteousness mm -hmm. and um, uh, that that show is just absolutely incredible. We were talking before I, I press record here about it's got a Les Miserables feel yeah. to it. It's got yeah. the, the guy who's bent on righteousness and justice yeah. and the guy who looks at that system and says, I can actually do more good if I ignore right. that system and, and, and subvert it yeah. so that I can do more good. Yeah, and, um, and, and also the guy who, um, who's bent on righteousness and justice is a sex addict. Right. You know, like, right. like the, the layering of yeah. these sort of, the, the sort of two, the two-faced, you know, both of those lead characters, the mm -hmm. one, he's a, he's a venture capitalist and he's a philanthropist and, every, and he's sort of everybody's hero in all these ways, but he's, He's a crook. Yep. He's breaking the law all the right. time, doing right. all kinds of insider training and all this. So both of these characters are these compromised right. guys right. who have self-justified in these different ways. Mm -hmm. That's, the, that's a great show. The shows that show us how gray we all are mm -hmm. and don't allow us to be mm -hmm. black and white, that's, yep. that's the compelling stuff to me. That's why Mad Men was so incredible, right. is, is they, never, they never turned Don into a complete villain. Mm. You're always cheering for him a little bit, and you're always... You're always optimistic that maybe he's gonna he's gonna be all right with his kids, like right. he's gonna show up for his kids when they need him and stuff. Right. And then you know, and then he always disappoints you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that's uh, the wire was that way too. Okay. Like the wire, the way the wire sort of humanized the drug dealers and the villains, mm -hmm. right? And and made you compassionate for them and, and made you understand why they're doing what they do. Mm -hmm. um, and then these cops who who you also love. Um, are drunks and adulterers mm -hmm. and are just, they're, they're bearing this burden of justice and it crushes them. Yeah. And so they, they hide their pain with, you know, a case of beer every night. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, book, uh, book, um, you know, uh, oh, man, this is tough. <laughs> this is tough. Uh, the, the, the book, I, the book I just read that I really enjoyed is this book, um, we, we were talking about it before as well. Yeah. It's called Yellow Blue Tibia. Yeah. And it's just an interesting book about, um, it's a sci-fi book about um, sort of communism and UFOs and all this kind of stuff. But it's also a love story and it's also a story about perception and what we can know. 
it demands a um, I think I think it's a book that asks asks interesting questions about um, how much do we really know about our own experiences. Yeah. Like it's sort of Jamie Smith has this phrase that the cracks in the secular. Mm. You know, a lot of art sort of shows the cracks in the secular, and and by that he means we we assume a secular world. We assume a world without God and spirituality and transcendence and unknown and mystery and all these things. Yeah. And you know that was a book that for me I thought poked at some interesting cracks in that theory okay. of knowing what the world is. Yeah, I love that. So. Um, and by the way, we'll have links in the show notes to all the, the resources that are being mentioned here today. So if you're scrambling to find something to, to write these down, don't worry. We'll, we'll put those in the show notes for you. Um, I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, Rhythms of Grace, sure. which came out in 2012. Uh, 12 or 13. It's hard, like yeah, yeah, hard to sorry. remember. Yeah, yeah no, probably. You're good. you're good. You talk a lot about, and, and we've talked about already the effect of, of liturgies on our spiritual formation, how retelling mm-hmm. that gospel story, that gets baked into um, the rhythms of, of what you do when you're sent from the church. Yeah. Um, can you flesh that idea out a little bit more for us and talk about what rhythms look like for you, whether yeah. they're daily, weekly, monthly, whatever? Sure. Yeah, um, I, think, I think the core idea... The core idea I was trying to get at in Rhythms of Grace, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of books that are exploring this theme from various angles. Jamie Smith's stuff, You Are What You Love, is a great book to look at that does this. Um, there's a book called The Power of Habit that is sort of a secular perspective on this that's, that's really helpful. But the idea is that uh, ultimately habits shape our lives. Yeah. And most of us would admit that, but most of us, I think, have a, have a woeful ignorance of what our actual habits are. Mm. Um, and so the first thing I'd say is, you know, when, when we're having this conversation around spiritual practices and worship and liturgy, I always encourage people to go and, and I say, you know, track your time, like really track your time for, for a few days, three, four days. What time did you get up? What time did you go to bed? What, um, where did you eat your meals? Like where and how did you eat your meals? Did you eat your meals on the go? Did you eat with people? Um, track that kind of stuff. Track your usage of your social media and your computer, your surfing, um, and you know, and then and then appointments that you had, conversations you had, map it all out on a on a on a calendar for two or three days, and then after, maybe, again maybe three or four days is probably better. After that, sit down and look at it and go, what are the things you're doing over and over again, mm-hmm. and what are what are patterns that you're seeing, and the longer you do this for, the more helpful and the more clear it can be. But after about four days, you can get at it. Um, and then, and then once, once you've got it in front of you like that, right at the top of it, these are my spiritual disciplines. Mm. Um, because all of this stuff has soul shaping power. There's soul shaping power to your engagement online. There's soul shaping power to the media you consume, the way you entertain yourself, the way you eat, the way you, um, the way you keep yourself busy. Um, and, and so then with that, as you notice those patterns, start to write them down and go, what direction is this leading my life into? What's mm-hmm. this calling me to? Mm-hmm. Is this calling me to try to display and impress? Is this calling me to try to be busier so I can be more successful? Um, you know, and then some things will come up on there where you're like, oh, this is me trying to draw near to my kids or my wife. You know, these, these are meaningful disciplines. These are mm-hmm. good disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you have to look at your, you have to start with sort of, I mean, Calvin says this in the Institutes, like, there's no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. We have to have, if we want to move towards holiness, we have to have a really clear understanding of where we are and of the formative power of the things that we're doing. Um, then from there, you can start to look at, 
worship as a spiritual practice and spiritual disciplines, your daily disciplines and things as, um, as habits that are, that are meant to, to be a part of that daily rhythm that are reorienting you to another way of seeing the world. Yeah. So, so what are some, some helpful things that you found in your own life Yeah. for daily stuff, weekly stuff? Yeah. One of my favorite things, um, that's been one of the most helpful, helpful things in the last few years is something Don Whitney wrote, wrote about it. It's called the, the Psalm of the day. And if you, uh, and that's something you can find and put in the show notes for sure. He's, okay. I'm sure he's got it online. He's probably got lectures where he talks through how to do it online. But basically, there's 150 psalms. On the average month, there's there's 30 days. That means every day you sit down, he, he would say, you have five options for a psalm to pray through every day. Hmm. And and what he encourages you to do is just let the psalm guide your prayer. You know, okay. if If you read a verse about the glory of God and... You want to just pause and reflect on glory and the ways you've seen glory and, and that sort of thing, then do that. Um, if you read the word Cyprus and it reminds you of a friend whose name is Cyprus and you want to pray for Cyprus, pray for Cyprus. You know, like <laughs> right. he's very, he's very much like, just ask the Lord to be with you and, and allow the Psalm to sort of invite you into, into prayer. It's a, it's one of those simple practices that like start with five minutes a day. Um, most people, uh, I think, I think spiritual disciplines can be intimidating because people think I don't have an extra hour. Yeah. Um, nobody has an extra hour, right. but take five minutes, you know, right. um, take five minutes, make a plan where on your drive home from work, instead of listening to the radio or whatever, maybe you'll listen to a, uh, listen to a, a, a sermon audio podcast and, or maybe you'll turn the radio off and you'll just pray to prepare your heart so that you can de-stress yourself mm-hmm. before the Lord, mm-hmm. um, before you enter back into the home with your family. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, consider like, Consider those. One of the things I always talk about is consider those moments in your day that are that are key, that are really important, um, and then and then try to find ways to set those up for success. Where you have some time to like take five minutes for quiet, just yeah. to get yourself get your head clear. Um, I think journaling is a great practice um, that that does this. It's another one of those things that people think, oh, I don't ever want anybody to read it, or I hate it, or whatever. Um, and I just encourage people throw it away. Like write three pages in the morning, take fifteen minutes, and then tear it up and throw it away. You yeah. don't have to keep it. Yeah. Um, what, you're not Thomas, Thomas Merton. You're not Henri <laughs> Nouwen. Most likely, no one's going to read it after you're gone. Right. So just throw it away. <laughs> right. Um, let it be you pouring out your heart before the Lord, which is what the Psalms model for yeah. us. Yeah. Be honest about where you are. Right. You wake up in the morning. Most people wake up in the morning. They're anxious about their day. They're frustrated about the day before. Um, there's sadness. There's 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 fear about missed opportunities and all those kinds of things. Take, take 10 minutes, take 15 minutes, just get all that stuff on the page. Hmm. Know that the Lord is with you and sees it and hears it hmm. and then move forward with your day. Hmm. And it's amazing what that practice I've seen do and transform people's lives. I, I do that every day and it's a huge, huge practice for me. I love that. I, I think you're so right about the time commitment. People think I need an hour the, the concept of, of quick, small wins with this yeah. kind of stuff, it's amazing what that momentum will do for you. Right. So one of, my, uh, one of our, our friends shared a story about um, a friend of his who was trying to lose weight. Hmm. Um, and he walked, I think it was like 20 minutes a day or something hmm. like that. He would walk. Hmm. But he did it every day. Yeah. Um, and four or five months later, he had lost 30 pounds or something. Wow. You know, and, yeah. and 
we get overwhelmed with thinking, I just don't have any more space. Yeah. But if you can, if you can find five or 10 minutes, yep. right. And, and incorporate some of this stuff, it'll... especially if you can do it a couple times, like find a couple windows a day. Sure. And I, I really do think there's something to be said for having some kind of morning practice and some kind of evening practice. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they don't have to be long, but just, just marking your, marking your day, anchoring your day by bringing yourself before the Lord. That's good because I think people get they also think it's one or the other. Yeah. So I'm a morning person. I'm going to get up and do it in the morning or I'm not a morning person, but I'll do it at night. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's helpful. Um, okay. Continuing on that, on that thought a little bit. Um, I noticed you took some time off of Twitter. Speaking of social engagement, was that, uh, to work on, on the book that is coming out soon? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the title is the quiet and the chaos. Well, that was the title. (laughs) Oh, so, uh, we don't have a title right now. Okay. You got to update your website. There've been, yeah, I need to update the website. (laughs) Well, I I wasn't going to update until I had a new title. Okay. 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 Cause I I think untitled book (laughs) looks, looks lazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was to work on, that was to work on that book. Um, essentially rhythms of grace kind of looks at this question of sort of habits and practices from a, from a corporate uh, vision, and then this this new book essentially um, essentially starts by saying, "Hey, how has how has the world around us primed us for spiritual experience in a way that that we're already in a, at a deficit hmm. uh, when we when we when we come to faith?" And what I mean by that is, um, you know, we, we live in a secular age. Secular age has primed us towards disbelief. Has, has primed us to be resistant to faith. Yeah. Um, so I want to unpack how that, how that works, how that's happened. Um, I want to unpack in the book, I, I try to unpack how, how Christianity in our time, like our own practices of, of Christianity are sort of infected with that attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and then begin to look at what are, what are ways to reorient ourselves to another way of seeing the world, um, that, that I believe things like spiritual disciplines, um, are a means of uh, a means of doing, and and it's not just spiritual disciplines in the classic sense, but spiritual disciplines like family meals, like like a married couple taking their sex lives seriously as a way of being knit together, uh, body and soul, um, and and then again habits like scripture reading and prayer and stuff like that. But but looking at looking at uh, versions of those practices and habits that maybe appeal more to the imagination and the heart mm-hmm. uh, and work more on the level of desire uh, rather than what we're often primed to do, which is learn to diagram sentences and uh, parse the Greek. So, mm-hmm. um, When can we expect to see this, this book? Uh, so I, I, I'm guessing it'll be out in about a year. Okay. I think it'll be out in about a year. It's, it's, it's off to the editor right now, okay. so there'll be revisions and things like that, but... I'm I'm thinking you know spring of next year hopefully okay. it'll be out okay yeah and after 16 years at Sojourn you're now the director of the Harbor Institute for Faith and Work Faith and Culture Faith and Culture yep, okay that's right. and it sounds like this book uh, has quite a bit to do with what you're doing there mm-hmm. but can you tell us a little bit more about that project yeah essentially I want to um, uh, I'd like to see more and more resources I mean I think there's great stuff out there um, but but I want to focus on developing resources for Christians in the marketplace. Um, and Christians in culture, and by that I mean, if you're if you're a Christian and you find yourself surrounded by by unbelievers pretty often, um, and you're trying to figure out how do we navigate the the increased tensions that are going on uh, in our in our world, I I hope that what we do our, our aim with the Harbor Institute is to be serving you, um, you know, men and women both, um, 
often I think I think it'll appeal hopefully to a lot of people, but I think it'll especially appeal to people who are living in cities um, and people who are surrounded by by unbelievers. Um, we kind of have three values that are going to govern the, the stuff that we're doing. There, we, we're calling it good ways, good work, and common good. So good ways is a reference to Jeremiah six uh, sixteen where he says, look for the ancient path where the good way is, and you'll find rest for your souls. So good ways is spiritual formation. It's this conversation we're having here. Like, what are practical ways that we can integrate faith into, into the rhythms of our, of our busy, busy, exhausted lives mm. that are life-giving and that, that can genuinely help to sort of reorient us to life in, with God and life in God's kingdom. Um, good work is thinking about faith and work and thinking about what it means to, to, to contribute to, to culture-making. Uh, in meaningful ways. And then common good is looking at the world around us and going, where can we lock arms? What can we celebrate? What are, you know, what are the ways that, um, that even in a post-Christian culture, we can, we can say an amen and say, no, we're, we're with you. We're yeah. on the same page. Yeah. That's exciting. We're, we're, you can go to the Harbor Institute.org yep. and sign up for the email uh, list right now. Yeah. So absolutely. you can stay informed on, on what's happening with that. And we'll have links to that in the show notes as well. Um, but excited to see what you do there. Thanks. Um, Okay, three rapid-fire questions to close. All right, do it. Okay. What's the nerdiest thing that you're into right now? Uh, I'm, it's, it's probably this new sci-fi writer, this yeah. guy that I was talking about. Okay. Uh, he's got a book called uh, The Thing Itself, yeah. which is sort of a riff on the, the, the movie The Thing, the, the old sci-fi film, and um, uh, uh, Kantian philosophy. So okay. Okay. it's very nerdy. The Thing Itself, all it's right. It's good. Um, did you like the new Star Wars movie? I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. Okay. I, I think the critiques of that movie are totally, totally missing the point of what the series has been doing up to this point. Yeah. Like, of course they're telling the same story. <laughs> like, the universe is trying to get it right. And, and it didn't work with Anakin. Yeah. And it didn't work with Luke. Yeah. And so, yet again, like, of course they're telling the same story. Right. So, and people who want to complain about, you know, the, the Starkiller base is just way implausible. Yeah. Like... The, the one of the lead characters is a Muppet, so don't don't talk to me about Starkiller Base being implausible. I love it. I also loved it. Like one of the big reasons I loved it is we took we took our daughters to see it. Yeah, they're they're eight and seven uh, when it came out, and just to see them having the experience that I had mm. watching Return of the Jedi mm. when I was their age, like just their imaginations just on fire. Yeah, um, and and to see themselves in Ray, you mm. know, to have a hero that really. That it just was. It was a great experience. I love that. Are you optimistic about the next one? I. I mean, Ryan Johnson's amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, I'm very optimistic. Yeah. Okay. About the next Good. One. Same here. So. Um, all right. Last last question here. Who are you going to vote for? <laughs> oh. The people need to know, Mike. Man, um, uh, my 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 pat answer on this one has been I've been I've been stuck between writing in uh, Bart Simpson and School Sucks. <laughs> uh, that's actually an, an Arrested Development joke. Um, yeah, man, I don't know. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I I say that because I'm compelled to not vote for for either candidate. Sure. Um, for for a lot of reasons. Um, Maybe the serious question is how can you help Christians think wisely about the upcoming election? I think they need to think. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think we are, we are in such a culture of, of sound bites mm. and of sort of brand loyalty. If, if, if the people I, if, if the brands that I buy and consume are, are with this candidate, then I'm going to be with this candidate. It's a, def, it's a default setting thing. 
um, and it's thoughtless. Um, the I think the support around, again, on both sides of the party, the support that has gathered around them is is thoughtless and it's ideological. Mm. And the only way that politics in America is going to change is if the American people uh, start start really listening, like listen to what people are actually saying, mm. like listen to the things that Donald Trump is actually saying, and and ask yourself, is this rational? Is this reasonable? Can I, as a as a Christian person who is called to to love my neighbors and be compassionate, can can I, in good conscience, um, you know, support this stuff? Mm. Um, and the the hindrance to arriving at a reasonable conclusion to that is people don't want to think. People don't want to think. They want to they want to be loyal to their brand. Mm. So mm. that's helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. We appreciate it. Again, Mike is the uh, director of the Harbor Institute for Faith and Culture. You can read more about that. Actually, you can read where it says coming soon at uh, theharborinstitute.org, but you can sign up for their email list while you're there and um, and be notified as soon as, as things are happening with that. So thanks for listening. We'll be back uh, soon with another episode of the Park Church Podcast.